Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy of Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined as always by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. And Sean Walker from Simple Cove. Hey, guys. How's it going? What's All up, right, Sean? Good. <laughs> Sean, Sean's had too much coffee, I think, tonight. No, I'm saying hi to both of you, not just Guy. Oh, thanks. That was very considerate. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. So right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife. And I'd also like to say hello to a new patron we have this time, Alex Marcus. And we sincerely hope that you will give us your support. Uh, make sure to listen all the way to the end of the show, and we're going to give a shout-out to some folks who we think are notable woodworkers to follow on social media. So let's get right into it. Hui, what is your first question? My first question is from Larry, and he asks, I have a Delta 28243 14-inch bandsaw with a riser block kit that I've been slowly upgrading. I've put new wheels, bearings, and urethane tires on. Next step I'm thinking about is ordering the Carter wheel guides instead of using cooling blocks. They're spendy, so do you think it's worth the upgrade? Thanks and love the show. I thought this question was great because I've actually had the opportunity of using three different guide systems on my bandsaw. Not the bandsaw that I have now, but the bandsaw that I restored a while back. Uh, so I've used the steel guides, I've used the phenolic impregnated graphite guides, and I've also used the roller bearing guides, and I actually used all three of them on the jet. Bandsaw. I think the cooling blocks are like the phenolic thing. Yes, that's right. Yep. But yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something and uh you know this might uh this might be a little controversial, but I actually don't think the guides correct the saw. In other words, what I mean by that is if your saw is sawing straight, the guides do not make your saw saw straight. I disagree with you. Okay. Why do you say that? Because when you're sawing, I should say more resawing than anything else, mm -hmm. because you put the gullets of the blade in front of the guides, mm -hmm. and then the guides help keep the back of the blade straight. Okay, so you're talking about the the thrust bearing. Is that what you're talking about? That's what he's talking about. The wheel. Guides. I think he's talking about the wheel. The um, the side guys. I think he's talking about, exactly. I think that's what he's talking about. Yeah, and that's that what I'm talking about. You're talking about the one behind the blade, right? Not on the ones that are on the side? Yeah, I'm talking about the ones that are on the side. Okay. Huh. Okay. Then I guess we are talking about the same thing. They should be like really close, but not touching the blade, but really super close. And they and if, if the blade starts to drift at all, it helps keep it in alignment. So yes, I agree that the, the guides need to be very close to the blade. Uh, what I'm talking about is the guides, I believe, are more for curves, you know, keeping the blade from going off track when you're trying to cut a curve. Yeah. At least when I'm resawing on, on my current Grizzly saw, which has roller bearing guides, when I'm resawing, I never see those guides really uh, spinning or interacting with the blade at all. So I, I always kind of thought that the tension of the blade, uh, where the blade was is on the wheel matters more so in terms of it staying true and, and being able to cut straight than the uh, side guides. But, you know, m maybe I'm wrong. Uh, that That's just sort of what I always thought. 
I've used the the cooling blocks, the phenolic cooling blocks. And what I liked about them was that they're actually self-lubricating. So as it wears, it actually continues to lubricate. The block continues to remain lubricated, which is kind of a neat thing. I, I always thought that that was kind of a nice touch. But I will say that the the steel blocks, now they're, I think sometimes some of these saws have like the steel blocks. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. What I disliked about that was that if it if it came anywhere near close to the tip of the saw blade, it would dull it. And and that was always kind of like, oh gosh, I got rid of those right quick. You know, they came with the yeah. saw when I got it and I put the cooling blocks in. Now, Sean, you've got a you've got a delta band saw, don't you? Uh, it's a porta cable 14 inch. Porta cable, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, they're all pretty much the same thing. And I've got the um, uh, the blocks that he's talking about, the self-lubricating blocks, not the wheels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you've had that, that saw for a while. I know you want to upgrade, but I mean, have they been pretty good for you? Yeah, they have. I mean, I've had it for six, six and a half years. I'm able to resaw. I put a, a riser block on it. I mean, I've had no issues out of that whatsoever uh, with everything yeah. dialed in. I actually, I upgraded to the uh, the cool blocks over the the ones that came with it. I mean, I've not seen a reason to just go out and upgrade to the Carter wheel guides instead mm-hmm. of the cooling blocks. Um, I mean, it's something that I obviously want to get in my next bandsaw, but it's not something that I'm going to go and upgrade on this bandsaw because I just don't think that I personally need it. Mm-hmm. My The first bandsaw I owned was an old Sears bandsaw, and it was really funky. It was a 12-inch bandsaw. And the table on it, which was cast aluminum, was static. And the whole assembly with the upper and lower wheel, that's what tilted. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah. It was it, it, it was funky, but it was cheap. I think I only paid like two or $300 for it. And I had that thing for years. Wasn't that just like a 10-inch throat or something like that? It's a 12-inch. 12-inch throat. Okay. And it was fine. And it had the cool the cool blocks on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it worked fine for me. It only had a six-inch resaw capacity, uh, but it was fine. And then I upgraded to a jet. And I put I did put the Carter wheel guides on the jet. Mm-hmm. They were expensive. But getting to Larry's question, do we think it's worth the upgrade? Now, if I remember right, those Carter wheel guides are like a hundred and some dollars. They're 180 uh, yeah. for the top. Oh, my. And the bottom wheel, uh, wheel guides. Yeah, that's... 180 bucks, man. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I guess my question, I'm going to throw it back to Larry too, is why do you think you need to change them? Right. I mean, if your saw is cutting well, mm-hmm. it resaws well, it cuts curves well, yeah. it does everything you need it to. Mm-hmm. I don't see the point upgrading it. Now, on the other hand, if you are having issues with the, the blade drifting and not cutting the way it's supposed to, you might want to either look at your, your setup right. or you might want to look at your, your blocks and maybe the car to wheel guides would be a good upgrade for right? Yeah, I think that's key is what you said is how is it acting now? Because he, he put new wheel bearings and, and tires on it. I mean, if is it resawing fine? Is it Do you have any drift? Is, is there anything wrong with it? If you're just chasing perfection, but it's doing a good enough job now, I mean, personally, I wouldn't. And I mean, unless you absolutely need it, mm-hmm. if it's working fine the way it is, I say keep keep on keeping on. I will add yeah. one thing. I know that a couple of turners actually, uh, wood turners, bowl turners, actually prefer the cooling blocks over the roller guides because they're cutting a lot of wet wood. And so those blocks actually will scrape off the pitch on the side of the blade. Yeah, but where does it go? 
I don't know. I'm just saying that that's one Ew. of the preferences. <laughs> Ew. Like Laguna has those ceramic bearings yeah. that, that touch the blade. Mm-hmm. I looked at Laguna saw once and it barely up to my crotch of my pants. It was The table was so short on it. It was like it was made for, a sm- for very short people. Anyways, so I think, Sean, you have the next question. I believe I do. Uh, This is from Mike Miller of Miller Woodcraft. I have a question for you guys. I have found in many cases it's easier to break out a hand tool than to set up an operation using power tools. In what cases will you choose to choose a hand tool over a power tool and why? I'd love to hear your thoughts. For my setup in the shop, there's very rarely do I go straight to a hand tool without including or involving a power tool at all. I mean, it's very, very rare. The only time I'll do that is if I'm doing a really small hinge, I'll use a chisel and a uh, router plane to mortise away the the waste for the hinge. Mm -hmm. But primarily when I involve hand tools, it's when I'm trying to dial in a piece, for instance, like on tenons, I'll get pretty close and then I'll follow that up with the shoulder plane or my rabbiting block plane. And with tenons, it's extremely easy to go from too tight to extremely loose. So I like to dial that in with hand tools. Uh, Another example, I guess, is when I'm using my number four to remove mill marks on narrow pieces like legs and aprons. Um, I just think a well-tuned hand plane makes it a whole lot easier and faster and more enjoyable than breaking out the sander on every piece. If I can save a few minutes from sanding and, and use the hand plane, it it, it's going to make me happier. Yeah. And what about you guys? Do, do you have any operations that you go straight to the hand tools instead of involving power tools and then the hand tools? And if so, what are those? You know, I've been, I've been blessed to have a situation where uh, I'm usually able to get pretty stinking close off of the machines. And I've gotten to the point and I've got a really nice tenoning jig that I use on the table saw that has a really great micro adjust on it. Man, you know, just just dialing it in, and by the time, I don't really need to go to the block plane a lot of the times. But there have been situations where I want to try a method like using the bandsaw just because I want to do something different, and I might make my tenons on the bandsaw. And usually in that situation, I will go to a block plane or a shoulder plane. But man, a lot of times I'm getting off of the machine, and, you know, my machines are set up well enough where I really don't have to use the hand tool all that often. Um, for joinery, what about for for cleaning up the the, the pieces after milling and, and cutting at the at the tools? You know, it's spoke shaves and and um, yes. and rasps and, and hand planes and stuff because you've done a lot of uh, of shaping here recently. That yes. although you can get close with the the power tools with the band saws, you still reach for those hand tools. Yes, yes, that's a different animal. Yeah, yeah, I, I will say that, that that's a little bit different. And even at that, you know, coming off of the router table with a pattern routing the chair backs that I, that I've been working on. Uh, yeah, you know I don't really need to go to the spoke shape. I can go to the I can go to the orbital sander. You know I can go to the uh, the Rotex with the with a soft pad, and that usually will get really nice and clean. And in that sort of situation, when I've got like ten eight chairs to do, man. That's just a lot of time at the bench. And I do enjoy, uh, don't get me wrong, I love spending time at the bench. I do. That's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's how I feel a lot about it. I mean, most of the time, and we've discussed this before, I, I was I was pretty much taught to do everything off the machine, yeah, off the saw. But there are times when I just want to slow down, I want to listen to the radio or listen to tunes or listen to a podcast or something. 
and I don't want the machines running. Right. And I'm not in like any big hurry mm-hmm. to get something done. So I'll sit down at the bench and it's like, okay, I'll break out the, the chisels and the planes and do it that way instead of, you know, going over the table saw and setting it up and stuff like that. There are times when it's easier to break out a hand tool. This is another thing to discuss. So let's say you're trying to make a tenon that's at an angle. Right. It's very easy to lay out in a few minutes. And if you can cut to a line, it's much easier to do that with by hand. Right. Than by machine. Right. Even if you have like a Hui, you've got that panel router, it'll still take you half an hour to set up. Yeah. Yep. It takes a while. You know. Right. And by the time you've got that set up, I could have three or four tenons cut. Right. The same thing with a router jig, like the Lee jig, the Lee router jig is a great jig. It's an awesome jig, but man, you know, you got to get it all set up and you expect to do several, several drawer boxes with that, right? Yeah. And I only, I only do dovetail drawer boxes, like if I'm lucky three or four times a year Mm -hmm. and I got to break, I break out that Lee jig. It takes me an hour and a half to get set up because I got to read the manual again. Right. And you got to do test cuts. I forget how to use it. Right. But once it's dialed in, so it may take me, you know, two hours <laughs> to do a, a pair of simple half blind dovetails. The benefit for me, though, is if I tried to do that by hand, I'd be there all day <laughs> and they would they would look like crap. You know, the, the whole hand tool thing, I get it and I dig it, but there are times when I just need it done and I need it done right. And since I, I'm not a hand tool expert by any stretch of the imagination, it's much easier for me to use power tools, regardless of the setup time. You know, I know this sounds kind of touchy-feely or whatnot, but man, sometimes the nostalgia of using hand tools, you know, just the... Yeah, the that's con- the whole romantic thing. <laughs> I am not romantic about any of that stuff. Well, let, let's think about this for a second. The only time I can think that I would rather go to a hand tool, it was like I was saying at the beginning, and that's when I'm chiseling away the waste for a yeah. small hinge on a box. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would take it's way faster for me to just grab a chisel, get close to the line, use a router plane, uh, set to a consistent Boom. depth, and bam, I'm done. Versus yeah. having to find the fence, having to find the bits, set the depth. Yep. I don't know. It's just Maybe there's just me, but I just think it's easier to grab a, a hand tool in that case. Well, here's another case, the Apollo chisel mortiser. You know, if I've only got a couple of mortises, two, three mortises to do, setting up the hollow chisel more, I got to roll it out. I got to set it up. I got to line it, square everything up. I got to get the bit in. I got to get it. You know, it, that takes a while. Man, just putting a Forstner bit into my drill press and just hogging out most of the waste and then just going to the bench and just using my chisel, I'm, it's faster in that sort uh, of situation. I don't know, man. I can set up my, my mortising machine really quick. I've had a mortising machine for 25 years. And I've used, I've made a lot of mortises. <laughs> Depending on the size so, of the of the piece that you're mortising, I think it's fa- faster to to set up a, a router with the plunge base. <laughs> well, then yeah. you know, I mean, that's still yeah. a machine too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, it just goes to show there's many different ways to skin a cat. So, mm-hmm. uh, but going back to Mike's original question, you know, for me, it depends on how I feel at the time. Yeah, and what the operation the is. Yep. And what the operation is. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a hurry and I know I can get it done quicker with a hand tool, I'll go to hand tools. But if I need precision and I need it, what, what I feel is is done a certain way, the way I'm used to, I'm mostly using machines. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Even yeah. if it's using a block plane on, on something small, it's still touched a power tool in my shop before it goes to the block plane. So 
Yeah. Power tools yeah. first, unless it's a small little uh, hinge. I really, th I think it's a very subjective thing. Yeah. Oh, is. absolutely. It is. So. Okay. So. Well, I think I've got the next question. You sure do. This is a long, this is from Dave, and this is kind of a long question. So I'm going to paraphrase where I need to. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, hi guys. Thanks for all the great contact content and for coming together to create this podcast. So here's this question. He lives in the, in the coast in North Florida, and it's a very warm and humid climate. Uh, he says, Hui, I know you live in Alabama, so maybe you can relate to this. You live in Alabama, Hui? Oh, Alabama woodworker. Now I get it. Huh. I thought oh. it was South Carolina. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a bad joke. I'm sorry. My shop is climate controlled, and then it has central AC, but it's an old building, and the humidity level varies greatly throughout the year. Uh, he doesn't have access to a lot of hardwood lumber, but what I get is typically kiln-dried and stored in climate-controlled environments. It seems invariably the lumber I get warps in some way, uh, and then it moves again after he mills it. He says, I know it's common, but I think the amount of movement I'm seeing is not what you'd see in a climate with more moderate humidity. Maybe I'm wrong. And he writes this, and this is the real reason I want to answer this question. The exception to this is a batch of air-dried cherry that I picked up from someone who had been drying for about 20 years. Given that I don't want to wait 20 years before starting each project, <laughs> is there anything I can do to reduce the amount of movement I'm seeing in my lumber? And can you talk a little bit about the techniques you might employ if the wood does move so it's just not all wasted? For example, alternating cups and bows when gluing a panel together so that they kind of cancel each other out. Um, lumber in, in North Florida. Now, I don't know if that's Gulf Coast or Atlantic Coast, but either way, it's it's very humid up there, oh, yeah. down there. Um, and it doesn't matter. And here's the, here's the thing I, I want to answer. He says, the exception of this is a, a batch of air-dried cherry that I picked up from somebody that had been drying for about 20 years. I don't care if it was cut down a year ago or 50 years ago. The wood is going to move. Just because it's been sitting in somebody's barn for 20 years, that doesn't mean it's completely dry. Right. The amount of moisture in the wood, it's going to find the level or be defined by the level of humidity that's in the air. So if you're in a humid environment like North Florida or somewhere really drastic like Houston or New Orleans, you bring that wood into your into your climate-controlled shop, you got to be really careful with it because if you... Mm -hmm. When I bring wood like that in, I'll stack it flat yep. and put it on stickers before I put it in my, whack, my rack, and I'll let it sit there for you know a couple, three weeks before I put it in my rack. And I buy a lot of air-dried stuff. So you don't have to wait 20 years, but get yourself a moisture meter and and do it that way. Hui, do you buy any air-dried stuff or do you get all your stuff from a lumberyard? I get all my stuff from a lumberyard and it's kiln-dried, but I see exactly where you were going with that in terms of it's out in the air, out in the open environment for a long time. It's acclimated to that. Now you're bringing it into your shop. I can guarantee, even though there's a lot of humidity in the coast, I can guarantee his climate control shop has less humidity than where that wood was yeah. out in the environment. And that's, I think, mm -hmm. where he's getting the problem. Yeah. How do you combat that? I mean, you just got to, you got to sticker it. You got to weigh it down. You got to put it in your shop. And honestly, even if you've got an intermediate area of your shop that's not quite climate controlled, but kind of gets a little bit of the runoff from your shop environment, putting it there and then stacking it there and then after a couple of weeks, then bringing it into your shop to slowly get it back to where it's going to be in that working environment. 
Am I making sense there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are your guys' thoughts on bringing some sort of dehumidifier in? Since he has AC- That acts as a dehumidifier. Yeah, the AC is a dehumidifier, right? Well, I understand that, but he still has- Humidity level varies throughout the year, so obviously it's not yeah. perfect. Mm-hmm. So it's going to you know, possibly help. Yeah. Do you buy a lot of air drive stuff, Sean, or you get all your stuff from a lumberyard? Uh, I get it all from a lumberyard. So it's all kiln dried. Yep, it's all yeah. kiln dried. Stick it in the rack, wait a few weeks, and uh, mill it, use it. Uh, I don't have a lot of humidity problems where I live, though. Yeah, I don't have a lot. I don't have humidity problems here. You know, sometimes in the summer, depending. I should say more in the springtime than the summertime. I buy both. I buy both air dried and kiln dried wood. The air dried stuff. I mean, if I buy air dried stuff, I usually don't even touch it for about six months after I've bought it, mm. and it sits in the rack. Yeah, I'd like to know how long he's letting it sit before he actually starts working on it. Well, I mean, it really depends. I mean, you have to get a moisture meter, yep. and it doesn't really matter what the absolute content is. But take a piece of wood that's been in your shop for, let's say, a year. Yeah, and if it's the same species, then just take a measurement off that, put it up to the other one, and take a measurement on that and see where it's at. The thing is with a lot of kiln-dried wood, it depends on who you buy kiln-dried wood from too. Yep. I mean, I've bought, I bought kiln-dried wood that some, you know, it's some guy that's, you know, chopping down trees in a forest he owns and he's not air drying it, but he's got a big kiln and it's horrible. It's case hardened and there's yeah. tension in the wood and it's just, he didn't do it right. So if I'm going to buy hardwood lumber from a lumber yard, the, the lumberyard has to have a good reputation. I'm just not going to buy it from some guy because he's got a kiln. Yeah. And you, I think you touch on something really important as I'm reading his question again. And he said that he knows this is common, but he could, he thinks that the amount of movement he's seeing is not what you'd see in a climate with more humidity or more, moder- more moderate humidity. Um, and he says the exception is with this air-dried cherry batch. And it's kind of yeah. making me think maybe, like you're saying, he needs to, to check the, the material that he's getting from his lumber dealer. Maybe it's not exactly dry. Maybe he needs to try a couple of different sources and see if he still has this problem. Yeah. Because if you're not having this problem on cherry that's been in air drying for 20 years, like God was saying, it's still going to move as well. Because when you're milling it, you're, you know, you're releasing moisture and, and possibly opening it up for more. It, it's going to move as well, I guess is what I'm saying. So maybe try a couple of different sources and see if you have the same problem. Yeah. But even then, you know, you get it from the same source and we can go on about this forever. I don't, <laughs> we don't want to do that. Um, you know, wood moves. It's got moisture in it. Yep. There's a, a humidity in your shop. Every, almost every time you buy wood and put it in that environment, it's going to move. And as you mill it, it's, it's going to move. move. And we, we've talked about this ad nauseum before in, other, in previous podcasts. Um, so get a hum- get a, a moisture, moisture meter. Just get a ch- yeah, get a cheap. I think I paid like forty dollars for mine. It's cheap one on Amazon. Yeah, and I just use it as a baseline. I just compare it to the other pieces of wood I have in my shop. Yeah, that I know have been here a while. And uh, sometimes you get a piece of wood and it's got a lot of tension in it, or it's been dried bad and it's you know all twisted and crappy. But I mean, yeah, it is what it is. Wood yeah. is a natural material. It moves. It it never wants to really be completely straight, I don't think. Yeah, you can experiment a little bit, mill a piece, take it in the house, leave the other piece out in the garage, see if it moves different, try a different lumber uh, source, and try a moisture meter. Yeah. But don't give up. <laughs> never give up. No. All right. 
So I think it's back to Hugh, you, Hui. Yep, it's back to me. This is from Brad. He says, hey, gents, love the podcast. Here's a question show topic for you. What are your top five productivity techniques when building furniture? I'm sure there is a ton of juicy nuggets of knowledge in there that can help a ton of people, including myself. I'm running a furniture business on the side and I'm trying to get faster while increasing, maintaining my quality. So, I, you know, I don't think we're going to go five each of us, but maybe, you know, one or two each of us. What I like to do, and I think a lot of us do, is actually mill up a little extra material that I know I'm going to be using for test pieces, particularly if it's got some form of complex joinery to it or whatnot. I'll, I'll run everything through and make sure that I have test pieces that are the exact same thickness as what my final pieces will be. And uh, and so once I get all my machinery dialed in, uh, then I just I'm just at the point of just batching out the same process until I go on to the next step. Uh, how about you, guy? What you got any uh, you got any tips for increasing productivity? Yeah, there's there's a lot of different things you can do. You really have to examine if you're trying to get faster. Really, it's not a matter of being faster. It's it's a matter of becoming more efficient. Yeah. At what you do, take a look at the different steps that you're doing to produce a piece. Let's say you know you're making a bunch of tables. And you notice that while you're you're making the legs, you know, you're walking from one end of the shop to the other end of the shop because a machine over here is doing one thing and a machine over there is doing the other thing. Take a look at it and say, can I move these two? I, and I do this a lot. So can I move that machine closer to that one? Set up like, you know, work, your workstations, depending on what you're doing. Having a mobile shop really helps. I move my stuff around all the time. Mm-hmm. Sean, I thought about this for a little bit and I mean, I don't batch out furniture, but one thing that helps me a lot since I I do this at night and on the weekends is I plan my shop time out. Meaning when the night before, uh, say if I'm, if I have the whole day off the next day and I'm um, working in the shop, I plan out exactly what I'm going to do in the order that I'm going to do it. And I try to think of ways that I can batch out processes to save time and allow me to, to, to save time material and get stuff done faster due to limited time in the shop. Um, so one, one technique or one productivity hack, I guess, is just to plan out your day and know exactly what you're going to do. So that way, when you're in the shop, you're not sitting there and thinking and wasting time trying to, to figure out what to do when you should have already thought of that, you know, the night before or the morning of or something like that. So when you're in the shop, you do the you do the woodworking and um, you know you get down to it. That's that's probably the most important thing for me with limited time in the shop. Yeah, so that's a good it's a good point. I just thought of one thing, and primarily because a lot of us are using oil type finishes, is uh, is doing actually the finishing in the evening before you go to bed, and then that way it can off gas, it can cure, and you're not having to. So look at that as your Achilles heels, like, man, I really wish I could, you know, run this piece of machinery right now, but that's just going to throw up all this dust and all this stuff up in the air and it's going to go on my finish. So maybe kind of figure out where that Achilles heel is in terms of where it's going to cut off your ability to do another operation afterwards. It's like a glue up, do the glue up. If you got a big glue up to do, do it as the last thing of your day. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it can stay in the clamps. Unless you're extremely tired and don't screw up. <laughs> and that's not, I'm, I'm speaking from experience on that one. Another another thing you can do is work from a set of plans. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There are times I work from plans, but my plans are really, really rough. Most of the time, 
And this is what I spend most of my time in my shop doing when I'm building things. A perfect example is that buffet I built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I finished over the, the, the Christmas holiday last year. I had no plans. I just went out there and just started cutting stuff up. Mm-hmm. And I built a carcass. And I'm like, okay, now how am I going to put the panels in it? So I sat there and scratched my head, drank some bourbon, <laughs> and figured it out. And that's okay. Now how am I going to do this? Now how am I going to do that? I spend a lot of time trying to figure out, because I, I tend to paint myself in the corner and I tend to overcomplicate things. Mm-hmm. I make very easy projects very complicated. But there's a reason for that. It's because I like to do it that way. Mm-hmm. It makes me use my brain, which I don't have much brain material left at my age. But <laughs> it, it does it does help me exercise my thoughts and my thought processes. So there are times when I've gone out there with complete plans to build some. Here's a great example. I needed some sawhorses. There's a bunch of people that sell like the Krenov style sawhorse plans. I know Philip Morley was selling them for like five bucks. So I went and bought a set of really basic sawhorse plans just so I didn't have to think about it. Yep. And I, I built them, you know, before lunch. So having a good set of plans helps. I know I was droning on there, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. Sean, do you have another one? Yeah, I think, I think we've, uh, cover all the ones that I would think of. We talking about milling up extra extra lumber and that's it's super handy. I can't tell you how many times that I went to dial in a machine and I'm like, okay, let's uh, find a piece of scrap that's super tiny because I didn't mill up any extra lumber that's the same exact thickness. Just things like that and see if you can batch out jobs on, on the tools that all at once. Just think of certain ways that you can put a bit in the router table that's going to uh, to save you time on multiple pieces instead of just one. Just ways to batch out stuff and save time is pretty much all I have. All right. Well, I think then you got the next question, Sean. Awesome. This is from Andy. My wife and I recently bought our first house and are looking to freshen up the kitchen. Looking to do a painted finish, but I am trying to weigh the pros and cons of refinishing what we have or purchasing new cabinets. The current cabinets are solid oak boxes with MDF doors with veneer front, original to the house. Originally, I was going to build new shaker style doors and then paint everything to match. However, after doing some test doors on a router table with a tongue of groove bit, I'm not feeling so confident with that and also the amount of work involved to remove the finish and repaint all the boxes as well. Given all that, it seems easier or more cost and time effective to buy new cabinets that I can finish myself or possibly pre-finish in the color we want. Any insight or advice you guys could provide would be very beneficial. Thank you in advance and absolutely love the podcast. I've been involved in two, um, actually not been involved. I've watched (laughs) my sister (laughs) and uh, her husband do theirs. I wasn't going to. And uh, my parents as well, they, they painted their cabinets. They both had cabinets that had the traditional dark stain on them and they painted them white. Um, I've had two different outcomes. My parents, they painted theirs starting by cleaning the cabinets, stripping and sanding the top coat, um, sealing it with a bonding primer, painting it, and then putting polycrylic on top of that. And it came out great. Was it a lot of work? Yes. So it depends on how big your kitchen is. Theirs isn't super large. It took them probably several days to a week to get everything from start to finish. um, And it came out great. Now, my sister and her husband paid somebody to do theirs and they did a crappy job and the the doors, they stripped it or they said they stripped it. And then they put the primer and the paint and the top coat. The paint color was white, but the top coat has yellow streaks throughout the whole thing. I mean, Ooh. it's a, it's a mess. Yeah. And Gosh. they fought with them and ended up 
screwing them over and all that stuff, but it's here nor there. So now they got cabinet doors that uh, have to be stripped again and painted to match the rest of the cabinets. So they've still got a lot of work left to do. Mm. But I think if you were to do it yourself, you would probably, you're a woodworker, you understand the process, you would do it, you would do it right, in my opinion. These mm. people were out to make a buck, so they were trying to do it as fast as they could. I don't know if it's going to save you time or not. You know, you're, you're looking at replacing all of the cabinets in your kitchen that you're mm. saying that you're still going to have to finish yourself. So it sounds like, are you not happy with the, the current door style and you want to re- change the style of the doors? I'm not sure. This is a uh, pretty pretty heavy question, and it sounds like a couple of different things going on. Yeah, yeah. It's a real heavy question. First of all, I wouldn't recommend using just latex paint on your kitchen cabinets because they'll get beat up. That paint will chip off pretty easy. You got to put, put a, a top coat on it. You got to put a top coat on it, like yep. a like a water based poly or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. This is this is a tough question to answer, Andy. And and I guess my first thing I would throw back to you is what's your budget? Yeah. If I'm a, a novice woodworker, however, I'm making $350,000 a year, I'm just going to pay somebody to do it. Right. <laughs> Even if I'm not making that much money, there are times when it just you just it's better off just to pay somebody to get it done. However, if you don't have it in the budget, building new doors, paint and then just painting the face frames is a good way to go. Ripping out all the, the cabinet boxes, if there's not an issue with them, it's going to greatly increase the cost and the amount of work to put new ones in. Even if you buy like those pre-made ones at the big box store, mm-hmm. you still got to paint them, you still got to install them, and they're not that high quality. It's, I said it's a tough question to answer, and it really depends on your budget. Yeah, are you, are Andy? Are you going to be the one that's installing the new cabinets? Because are you, are you trying to avoid the work of stripping, priming, painting, and, and top coating? Right. I mean, are you trying to save that work? But are you installing the cabinets yourself? Are you paying somebody else to do it? That's an, that's also an option. Is just to pay someone to re, uh, refinish your cabinets and paint them. You've already got the cabinets. If you like the look of them, if you like the style of the doors. You know, just pay someone to uh, to refinish them and paint them and top coat yeah. them. I mean, that's also an option. I hate sanding, stripping doors and getting them down. Then I would so much rather paint a new door than to have to refinish a door. My cabinets, the boxes are terrible. They are just terrible. So I don't even have an option. We have to redo our kitchen. I don't even have an option to keep to keep the boxes and just put new face frames and 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 put uh, mm-hmm. put new doors on because the boxes are just absolutely terrible. And plus, we just dislike the layout. And that's another thing to consider. If you don't like the layout of your of your kitchen, then putting all that money and work into uh, refinishing your your doors and whatnot will probably not. You know, it's still going to be a bad layout. You know. So that's another thing to consider. Yeah, I'm getting ready to redo my entire kitchen. I'm building all the cabinets. But the the layout's not changing. New boxes? Just all new boxes. Yeah, because the the ones we have on there, they have a frame on them, and they're they're just ugly doors and stuff. We stripped them and refinished them once already. But uh, Did you do it? Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But we don't like the style of doors, and we're going to go frameless on them, so they'll have a much cleaner look. You won't see any frames at all on it. You just see a, an eighth of an inch between all the drawers and the doors. And my wife wants drawers and cabinet doors in different places than what we have now. So that's all got to be done. And 
it's going to cost me probably three to four thousand dollars in materials to do the cabinets. Yep. Not counting the countertop or hardware or anything else, just materials and well, uh, drawer hardware. Right. And they're going to be painted. But the thing is, is if I had somebody custom make those cabinets, fifteen thousand. Oh, twenty. Yeah. 20, easy, $20,000. It's expensive to have people come in and do this stuff for you. Yeah. Custom cabinets are, are not cheap. Andy, I know I just mentioned in one breath that my sister paid someone to do it and they botched the job. So if you do go with someone, make sure that they are a reputable company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you got a couple of questions that you're going to need to answer first. Is it, you know, yeah. are you happy with what you have? You just want them painted? Or do you not like the style of what you have now? Because then you're going to have to pay to replace them. Yeah. And a lot of it depends on your budget again. Yeah. Well, Guy, I think you've got the next one. So this is our biweekly question from Eric at the Poplar Shop. He sent us a list of like seven or eight questions, and we're, we're slowly whittling down on it. So. They're easy and easy questions, so they shouldn't. Yeah, they're easy questions. So I'm going with question number two on his list, which is, What's your least favorite wood species to work with and why? Should we guess? Yeah. Why don't you guys guess? I'm going to guess Wenge for Guy. I've never even <sighs> I don't even know. I wouldn't even know what Wenge looks like. Yeah, me, <laughs> me either. What do you think, Hui? Uh, I'm going to say mahogany. Not the stuff, not the mahogany. You, you don't like the African mahogany, right? Guy? No, I, I really don't like African mahogany. <laughs> My least favorite wood species is red oak. Okay. Um, it's splintery. Mm-hmm. It smells bad. It's hard to, f- any type of finish on it. You got, and you have to put a, a, a stain on it because it just, the wood is such a crappy color. It's just difficult to work with. Um, but a lot of people use it because it's really cheap. I, I remember like in the 90s, that was a big thing. It's like, oh, I, it's solid oak. Okay. So that means you've used, that was cheapest wood somebody could buy. Because it is. It's just cheap wood. Um, I, I, I just don't like working with it. I find it hard to, hard to machine, mm-hmm. hard to use hand tools on, and hard to finish. I've never used red oak before. Never. I have. It's a bear to work with. Yeah, it sucks. But there was a time when I was just starting out, you know, and that's what they had at the, at that time, there wasn't big box stores. Mm-hmm. There was, there was a company that's been long gone out of business, uh, Builder Square. And that was in the eighties and you could buy, you know, red oak planks there that were surface four sides. It wasn't square or straight, but they said it was. <laughs> And I, and I bought a lot of that stuff and I, I made a lot of crap out of that stuff. And it was just, yeah, but it, it, you know, it was cheap and it, it sharpened yeah. your teeth, you know? Yeah, it was, it was cheap. So Hui, what, what's your least favorite wood species? I don't like pine. I don't like working with pine. Are you talking like SPF stuff that you get at the construction yes. lumber? Yes. That's, that's a little bit different than good pine. No, I know, I know, and and the reason why I'm mentioning it is because I think, uh, like a lot of us, we kind of start using that stuff, thinking that that's what you're supposed to use, or you know, it's cheap. Again, I will say I have an appreciation for the fact that it's there because, again, it cut my teeth. You know, got me got me working with with something, and it, it's what I could afford. But man, it was it was just always it was just, and that's what it's made to do. It's made to move, right? It's construction grade lumber. That's why it's like that. 
but yeah, I don't, I don't like it. And I kind of cringe a little bit when I see people making a lot of furniture out of it. It just kind of, yeah, a good, clear, not the construction grade, but good old clear pine. pine. Yeah. It's expensive as hell. Oh yeah. There's a couple times I've been lucky and I found some like really straight grain fur and stuff like that mm-hmm. at the at the big box store and I'll buy the board and it's nice stuff, man. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about how do you feel about pine, Sean? Um, I don't use it, but I don't mind it. Yeah. I don't mind I'm it. I'm talking pine, not the construction grade stuff, just pine. Yeah, I mean I've used it Different several animal. times. I have not had the privilege of using the really nice pine. You can go to a big box store and they they have pine boards there. It's common. Yeah. You know, it's got a lot of knots and stuff like that, but just, and it's not cheap either, but it it's really good for like drawer sides and stuff like that. Right, right. And the secondary wood, so. Yeah. One of my sawmill, one of the two that I visit um, actually sells it in the rough and I, I buy it often. Yeah. Yeah. Look at all those guitar makers. They're making all that uh, all right. the right. guitars out of, out of its fur. Yeah. Violins are, you know, spruce backed. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, let me see. Do you guys want to guess what mine's going to be? Uh, Coco no. Bolo. <laughs> I just like saying Coco Bolo. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you. I love the way it looks, but I hate, hate working with Paducah. Hate it. Never worked with it. Hate working with it. You work it with stinks. all that exotic stuff, man. Yeah. It stinks. No, it stains. Oh. Stains. It gets yeah, the, like orange dust everywhere. Yes. I love the way it looks, but I just, I don't know. I just don't, yeah, just stains, a little splintery. And I made a uh, nice picture frame out of it, and I'm looking at it now. It's a more of a brown color now versus the bright red, but I still love the color of it, love the way it looks. I just don't like working with it. Does it stink? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I guess I could probably stand up and go smell the picture frame, but I can't remember. <laughs> I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about Sycamore and it was Matt Kenny's pot, new podcast. And he went on and on about how, how awful it smells. It is. It's some nasty smelling stuff. I think poplar kind of stinks when you mill it. Yeah. But I love working with poplar, man. It mills nice. It, it's so easy to work with, but you, you, you know, it's paint grade. You can't really stain it and do all that other stuff. So, all right. Well, I, I think that that's it. As I mentioned on the top of the show, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. Hui, who's your pick this week? My pick this week is my friend Jenny at Willow's Woodworks. She is an amazing woodworker, first off, but she does some amazing scroll work. She's actually made my sign, my logo uh, for my shop. Yeah, she made one for me too. And I mean, I look at that and I was like, how does she do this on a scroll saw? And the amount of time that she puts into it is just an absurd amount of time to do the work that she does. But on top of that, she's also a really great cabinet maker. Uh, She makes some beautiful boxes. Mm -hmm. Very unique, very interesting with with her designs. Every single box that she makes is different. None of them look the same. Uh, Yeah. But then she also makes, uh, you know, great built-ins and cabinets and also furniture pieces as well. So definitely check her out. She she really is constantly pushing herself and she's always pushing out new product and material out of her shop. So definitely, definitely somebody worth following. How about you, Sean? Who you got? I have a, a YouTuber, not a YouTuber, but a guy that puts out YouTube videos. 
Thomas Johnson Antique Furniture Restoration. He's not your typical YouTuber, <laughs> but um, yeah. he does exactly that, furniture restoration videos, but he does such an amazing job of explaining what he's doing, teaching you, and they're not short videos. They're you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes, and you know, from start to end, I'm watching yeah. the whole thing. He just does an amazing job. He works on amazing pieces and, and knows what he's doing, and he loves teaching what he's doing, how he's doing it, and uh, pick up so many tips. And you can tell he's been doing it for a very long time. Just an awesome uh, YouTube channel to watch if you're wanting to learn from a master at uh, in furniture restoration. Thomas Johnson Antique Furniture Restoration on YouTube. Guy? It's over to me. I'm going to recommend Patrick Brennan. And his handle on Instagram is Tecton Guild. I think I'm saying that right. T-E-K-T-O-N Guild. He is uh, an instructor at the Austin School of Furniture. I think that's mm -hmm. where Philip Morley teaches too. That's correct. Yep. And he's just a really good woodworker, man. He posts some great pictures of stuff he's building, uh, the stuff his students are building. He's been playing around lately with uh, doing some uh, stools and seats with the Travisher. And it just takes really good pictures is another thing. He's got a good eye. Yep. To, for the pictures and he posts often and um give him a follow he, like i said he does really good work so that's my pick patrick's cool yeah so i think that'll do it for the show we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on itunes it really helps us in the search rankings and of course we truly appreciate the support and feedback please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you the word wicking community so if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found, Wee? You can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are there. And Sean, where, we, where can we find you? Simplecove.com and at Simplecove on YouTube and Instagram. So that's it. And uh, awesome. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. See you in a couple. See ya.